Dear Jesus, we need to hear from you today. We don't need to hear from a man. We don't need to hear ideas or thoughts about the way life should be. We need to hear from your mouth through this word. And I pray that as we go through this passage in John, Father God, you would open our hearts, my heart especially, to know you and to see you and to treasure you in the way that we ought to, to see why it is that you did what that song just told us, took on flesh and came and lived among us. What was motivating you? What was fueling you as you went to the cross for us, Father God? I pray that you would show that in your son today through this passage from John. I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Most people, even children, know what the word forgive means, know what that word forgive means. Forgive is to, when you forgive someone, you pardon their wrongdoing, a wrongdoing that has been committed against you. It's a common word. We all know what this word is, and we learn it at a very young age um, because you are wronged at young ages, and you are often the person who is wronging others at a young age. And so forgiveness is one of the first moral concepts a human being learns. It's really woven into our social fabric. The word forgive has at its root the word give. And the reason why is that the one who forgives must lose something. There is a loss involved. Forgiveness is never free. It's always costly because for the person who's wronged to forgive, they must overlook the wrong and the offense that has been committed against them. And the greater the wrong, the harder it is to overlook it. The more that has to be given of that person to overlook that. Now, the irony of what seems to be a very basic moral concept that we all understand, I mean, think about it, this this. this aspect of human nature, forgiveness, arises in every culture in some way, shape, or form across the world because sin exists in every culture in the world. The irony of this is that although humanity knows what forgiveness is at a horizontal level and at a functional level, most people in this world spend zero time considering this exact principle, the same exact principle at a vertical level, in a vertical relationship. And the relationship I'm talking about is with God. Most people would laugh if I were to suggest that there is such a kind of being who exists, who has created all things, who holds everything together every moment of its existence, and that all things, because of that, don't exist for themselves. They don't exist for their own ends, but rather they exist for him, for his pleasure, for his joy, for his glory, and ultimately for him to be known and loved by them. That's why everything exists. He is a being of such stunning beauty that we can call him infinitely beautiful and it still be an understatement. He is objectively worthy 
of our affection, our adoration, and our love, and yet most humanity, most of humankind, regards him as a little more than a fiction, a joke, or a fairy tale. Or they twist him into an abomination that looks nothing like him. And in doing this, humanity, whether ignorantly or whether intentionally, becomes guilty of a kind of treason that is cosmic in nature. To defy or to deny a being like this, for whom and by whom all things exist, is to be liable for a punishment that should never end. And if, if we find ourselves doubting that, then we certainly do not have this kind of being in mind. We have some other figment of our imagination in the place of God, who is actually worthy of this kind of affection and attention. How could he forgive this kind of indifference, this kind of defiance, this kind of intentional disregard? How could he do that? And that's just like, if we think about it from that perspective, forgiveness in this vertical relationship, and, 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 and there's a, a, a act of treason that's committed against him, that's just one isolated event. Imagine, if you will, that there's an entire world filled with people who haven't just done it once, but have done it every day of their lives repeatedly, over and over and over and over again. Now, the question is this, how could that being, that God, infinitely worthy, forgive that kind of crime? And this question that is foisted on us by the, the concept of forgiveness is the question that we come to at the end of the prologue of the Gospel of John. So if you've been with us the last few weeks, we've been going through the beginning of the book of John in a section that most theologians call the prologue. It's the first 18 verses where John is setting the table for the story of Jesus, which will follow. And next week, God willing, that's what we'll be diving into, a new series, a new look at this book, this gospel of John. John is laboring in the first 18 verses, the prologue, to ask the question, why is it that God became man? That wasn't the answer to that question. The answer will come later. That was a robot. <laughs> Why is it that God became man? Why did the eternal word of verse 1 become flesh? And John is explaining, in, in explaining this, the answer to this question, John is going to also engage that massive question we just asked, how could God forgive sinners? How does God forgive our sin? How does an infinitely worthy, infinitely beauty, beautiful being pardon cosmic level treason against his worth? Which is what sin is. That's sin at its essence, is to say that God isn't worthy of affection or adoration. And this is the question that John's going to engage this Lord's Day. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please grab them, open them to John 1 verse 14, and we're going to read these, uh, I think it's five verses here. John 1, starting with verse 14. John says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And so last week, if you were with us, we saw, we looked at this same text and we asked a few questions about it and we saw that the word became flesh and dwelt among us such that in his dwelling he would die so that the fullness of God's glory could be ours forever. That's what we saw last week. And John makes this clear in verses 15 and 18 in this text. In verse 15, he quotes John the Baptist, who is holding out the unrivaled position of Jesus Christ, having been with God the Father from all eternity. He says, John the Baptist says, he ranks before me because he was before me. He was before actually everything. And verse 18 makes this even more explicit. The last verse here, which we see right here, verse 18 says that no one's ever seen God except for the only God who is at the Father's side. That's the Word. That's Jesus Christ. He is the only one who can make God known. And John's point in using John the Baptist's quote here in the statement in verse 18 is that no one can show us the glory of the Father except for God the Son. That's the only person who can. He is the very radiance of his glory, having always been with his fathers, with his father, at his father's side from before creation. And when this glory we saw last week, which just to define it, the glory of God the Father in his Son is the majesty and beauty and worth of God being seen and encountered. And when that radiates from Christ Jesus, from his words, from his actions, from his compassion for people, from his love, when that radiates through Jesus Christ, for those who receive him, that glory becomes grace. Verse 14 says, glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then at the very center of this passage, so that's what we looked at last Sunday, and at the center of this passage are verses 16 and 17, which is where we're going to focus today. I'm going to read these specifically, just isolated. John 1, 16 and 17. For from his, that's Jesus's, fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So at the heart of John talking about the unequaled supremacy of Christ to show us the glory of his Father, we have this statement that from the the fullness of Jesus, from the fullness of Christ, we have received grace upon grace. And then immediately after that, the word for appears at the beginning of the next sentence. 4, verse 17 says, and this is not a throwaway word. When you see four in the Bible, do not throw it away. It is not linking random random statements together. There is a connection here. 
4 in verse 17 is anchored and it means that, that what, what he's about to say in verse 17 is the, the anchor and the root of verse 16. We do not get verse 16 without verse 17. And John is saying the reason we can rejoice in receiving grace upon grace from the fullness of Jesus Christ is because, is for, we have seen, and then he gives this statement in verse 17 about the law, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. John is highlighting in verse 17 a contrast between the work of Moses through whom God gave to the people of Israel the law, which is what he says here, and the work of Christ who gives us in his fullness grace and truth. Now one thing I want to say before we press into what that verse means, and that's really what our time together is going to be, verse 17 uh, I want to clarify that, uh, that by saying grace and truth comes from Jesus Christ or through Jesus Christ, John is not telling us that God's divine revelation in the form of the law isn't gracious. I want to clarify this because um, the phrase grace upon grace, many theologians uh, believe that that's actually the, the literal rendering of it is grace in the place of grace. And scholars believe that it's designed to show that God was gracious when he gave the law, but he's been significantly, substantially, massively more gracious with Jesus Christ. Whether or not that's John's goal here in the language, both those things are true. God did give an enormous amount of grace to Israel when he gave him the law. He didn't need to do that. He didn't need to give the people of Israel anything. In fact, when you, when, you, when you read the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments begin with this statement of God's rescue and redemption of Israel. Right at the start, I'm the God who rescued you. You didn't do anything to earn that. And every divine revelation God's ever given to his people has been an act of mercy and grace. No one's ever earned God communicating reality and truth about himself and about his law. No one's ever deserved it. It came, comes from God's mercy. And in fact, the law in particular is interesting because the law showed Israel not only the moral excellency of God, like this is the God you serve, a perfect, beautiful, wonderful God who exalts righteousness. This is the God who rescued you from Egypt. But it also shows, and this is the true beauty of the law is that it shows their desperate need for his grace. It shows their repeated inability to live as people who could display his glory and honor him in the way that he deserves. And therefore, it gave them a necessary diagnosis. I mean, a needed diagnosis. They need a savior. And this could only be seen not only in like their inability to keep the commandments of the law, but also just the need for the sacrificial system was a picture, a, a, a shining example that resurfaced daily of the bloody cost involved in sin, in committing iniquity against God. And this, is, of course, is deeply tied to the concept we talked about right at the beginning, the concept of forgiveness. How does an infinitely worthy God Forgive those who defy him and deny him every single day. 
But John, his point in bringing up the law here is to clearly contrast Jesus Christ and Moses, the work of Christ and the work of Moses. He is showing a a stark distinction between the blessings that were given through the law and the grace that the law could give and against, over and against, the grace and truth that we see in Jesus Christ. And that grace and truth is received in Jesus Christ alone. It's interesting here because John actually has already mentioned grace and truth in verse 14. I think we got a slide for this. Verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of what? Grace and truth. Same exact words. John mentions them twice within two verses of each other in the same way. Now, what does he mean? (laughs) Why does John feel the need to use two specific words, not once, but twice in this passage? Calling the glory of Jesus Christ full of grace and truth. Well, the reason that John is bringing it up here in verse 17, and we can actually slide back to that previous slide, is actually rooted in what he says here. It's rooted in God giving the law to the people of Israel through Moses. This is why he brings up Moses in the law. If you remember from last week, uh, we talked briefly about this. God wrote the law on tablets of stone and he gave them to Moses. And when Moses was coming down from the mountain and could hear the singing of the people and could see what was going on, he found them in open rebellion against God. He came down in the middle of a worship ceremony to a golden calf, a false idol, and Moses, in his anger, hurls down the tablets of stone, and they are destroyed. And this act that the people of Israel had done isn't a trivial thing. It isn't a light thing, because what they are doing is they are telling God by their actions they have rejected him as their God. They don't want to do anything, they don't want anything to do with him for who he is. And despite the countless graces he's already shown him, and if you read the book of Exodus, this is Exodus 32 that this happens in, grace after grace from rescuing them from Egypt all the way through the wilderness to Sinai, mercy after mercy. And so God tells Moses that he should vindicate his worth and his holiness, the holiness of his name for rescuing a people who would reject him by destroying the entire nation and then just starting over with Moses alone. That's what God says to Moses in chapter 32 of Exodus. And we may think, I mean, I'm tempted to think, why don't you just forgive them? Why don't you just forgive them? I mean, it's a big deal. It's a golden calf. But in my statement there, I am ignoring the infinite worth of God. There is such a kind of value something could have that to do even the slightest thing would be to dishonor it. And the stunning thing, even though God is right and just in his determination to destroy the people of Israel, he doesn't do this. 
he doesn't do this. Instead, he relents from his anger and he shows the people of Israel profound grace and mercy. He tells Moses, come back up to the, ta- to the mountain. I'm going to replace the tablets. And in doing that, he is renewing his commitment to this people despite the fact that they've rejected him. This is extraordinary grace. But when Moses goes back up to the mountain, God doesn't just give him the law this time. He does something that is very, very unexpected. And it has implications that flow all the way into the New Testament and into John 1.17. Look at this scene in Exodus 34. Exodus 34, verse 5. Remember, he's brought Moses up. He's about to give him the tablets. And then this scene happens. It says, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. It says here that Moses hears that and quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. So rather than simply give Moses the law again, we have this amazing scene. When Moses goes back up to the mountain, it says, I mean, it says the Lord descended. What does that even mean? And the word Lord here, you can see this, we talked about this last week. It's in all caps because it's the personal name in the Hebrew. It's the personal name of God, Yahweh. So in the Hebrew, it's actually Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood with Moses. And instead of just simply giving him for a second time these tablets of stone, it says he passes before him and proclaims the name of the Lord. He proclaims the name of Yahweh to him. And what this means isn't that he's just saying Yahweh, Yahweh. God is telling Moses who Yahweh really is. He's telling Moses, this is the kind of God you're dealing with. I want you to know who you are talking to. You're talking to Yahweh of hosts. This is the kind of God. And so what does he say? Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, a God slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And then in verse 7, 
we go back to the previous slide. Verse 7, he introduces a massive paradox. And this paradox is really at the heart of the original question we asked at the beginning. How does an infinitely worthy God grant forgiveness to those who have betrayed his worth for other things? How does that happen? God in verse 7 says he forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. And yet in that same verse, he says he will by no means clear the guilty. How is that possible? How is it possible that God can both pardon sinners like Israel and like us, and yet still by no means clear the guilty? That's what's being said here. Forgiveness and grace are colliding with justice. And God says he's going to do both. He will forgive the guilty and somehow he will punish the guilty. And all of this is, is rooted in, it's, it's flowing from the proclamation of his name, that Yahweh is a merciful God who is slow to anger, and he is abounding, it says, in steadfast love and faithfulness, which Moses responds to by simply falling down on his face and worshiping. And then he pleads with Yahweh to pardon his people's sin and to go with them in, in the, in their midst. And as you know the story, God mercifully does this very thing. But we're never told the solution to the paradox. We're never told how God can be both these things, a just judge that punishes the guilty and a merciful and gracious father that forgives how is that possible? Exodus 34 doesn't tell us the answer. It only promises us that there is an answer that God has. And that answer is found in John 1.17. So if you could turn back there, turn back to the slide as well. When John says the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, John is giving us the answer to the paradox. He's showing in this one sentence the profound inferiority of the law compared to Jesus Christ. The law may be a gracious gift from God. It is a gracious gift from God. But it cannot save a single human being. Not ever. To do that, you need Jesus. In Exodus 34, in Exodus 34, God points to this answer in the words, steadfast love and faithfulness. The very words he says that he is when proclaiming his name. And if you've read the Old Testament at all, you've stumbled into these words many times over. They are throughout the entire Old Testament, this constant refrain that he is abounding in steadfast love and he's abounding in faithfulness. When John uses the words grace and truth, he is reaching back in time and drawing from the, from the, the Hebrew words hased, steadfast love, and emet, faithfulness. 
And so when John says in verse 14, Christ is full of grace and truth, he's not just coming up with a random statement. He's borrowing from the Hebrew scriptures that he has grown up on and he's bringing them into the, the Greek context and in the, in the modern Palestine context that he's in. And he's saying that this is who Jesus is. Jesus is the one that God was talking about in Exodus 34, where God himself, when giving the law to Moses, tells Moses, this is who I really am. I am abounding in steadfast love. And I am unwavering in my faithfulness. I am full of grace and truth. That's who I am. And John is saying that Jesus Christ is the personification of this reality. He is the very embodiment of God's steadfast love and his unwavering faithfulness. In other words, Jesus is the answer to the paradox. How does God forgive sinners yet justly punish their sin? The answer is very simple in the scriptures. Jesus Christ. No other worldview has an answer to that question. There's a lot of gymnastics done philosophically and theologically to get around that answer. But Christianity does have that. This is why the word became flesh. This is why God became man to show us his steadfast love and faithfulness. Not as an abstract concept, and not as just a couple of words that we know and we can read, but in the person of Jesus Christ, his only son. And this is the only way that God could save sinners while still being righteous and just. And I'm talking about sinners, whether it's Israel thousands of years ago or whether it's you and I. We said earlier that forgiveness always costs something. It's never free. It is a costly thing to forgive someone whether it's an injustice um, that has been committed against you or against your family, it is hard to forgive for a reason, because you've been wronged. The forgiver must give up something in the process of forgiveness. It might be justice, it might be vindication, it might be a peace of mind. The forgiver has to give up something to overlook the wrong done with us. And what John 1.17 is telling us is that the something that God gave up so that he could overlook our sin was his own son. Jesus Christ. The word, the eternal word who had been at his side from before there was time. Jesus is the only person in the universe who could take the punishment due us for our sin and fully absorb it such that when God looks at you and I, the only emotion he has that is governing his thoughts about us is love. That's how complete the sacrifice of Christ was. Which is why John can boldly say in verses 16 and 17, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. When God proclaimed his name to Moses thousands of years before Jesus would come, he was pointing to the embodiment of that name in the person of his son. He was saying, I'm going to tell you, Moses, how I'm going to forgive this. 
my abounding steadfast love and my faithfulness. This is how I'm going to pardon their sin and iniquity and transgression. I will come myself to dwell among them in the person of my son and I will die for their sins. This is what the gospel is. It's the glory of God the Father shining in and through his son's work on the cross to redeem his people so that they could have forgiveness. Paul tells us this very clearly in Ephesians 1, verses 7, verse 7. Paul says, In him, that is, in Christ Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Now think about this. I, I don't know how you read scripture. I stop and I try to squeeze as much reality and truth out of it as I can. Think about what Paul's saying here. Paul says, according to the riches of his grace, we have forgiveness. That's how we have it. According to the riches of the grace of Christ. Now, how in the world does he know that God can forgive my sins according to the riches of his grace? He doesn't know me. He doesn't know what I've done. He doesn't know what I've said or what I've thought. How can Paul say that? I mean, we're talking about, I mean, I don't know your story, but we're talking about years and years and years. I've been alive, and I cannot remember a day where I honored God as I ought. How can Paul say this? And the reason he can say this with confidence and with boldness and audacity to you and me is because it is from the fullness of Christ alone that we have received grace upon grace. He doesn't need to know our sins. He only needs to know the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And in seeing that, he has zero reservations in saying that Christ can forgive and redeem everything broken in you. Absolutely. Doesn't matter what you've done. Every single thing. Hear me on this. I mean, this is what this verse says. There is no sin that you and I have committed that is so great such that the grace of Christ cannot totally redeem it. That's who Jesus is. He is the consummate embodiment of God's grace, his God's steadfast love and faithfulness. And because in John 1.17, John says, makes this statement about grace and truth, John will not mention the word grace in his gospel anymore. The word charis in the Greek is not used anymore in this book. And the reason isn't because there's no more grace after John 1.17. There's plenty of grace. Page after page after page, you will see there is grace upon grace upon grace upon grace in an endless stream of grace through Jesus Christ. The reason that John can stop using the word grace now is because from now on, the name Jesus Christ is totally and entirely synonymous with the word grace. He is in his fullness the embodiment of grace and truth. John doesn't need to say the word grace anymore. All he needs to say is Jesus. And you know 
who he's talking about. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. It is an awesome thing to be forgiven. I really want the weight of that. To, it is an awesome thing to know the depth of our sinfulness and our brokenness. I mean, everything that I've done, everything that I've done to dishonor and ignore the worth of my creator. And yet to know that despite that mountain of sin, his grace is so much more. Richard Sibbs, the Puritan writer, has this line that I cling to. Think about this. There is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. I mean, I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't know where, like, your story, but like, that sounds to me preposterous. Because I know my sin. I know my life. I know my brokenness. I, even now, years and years walking with God, I fail every day. And yet John 1.17 exists in the Bible in order to tell us there is more grace and mercy in Christ Jesus than there is sin in us. He is full of grace and truth. So we're going to take communion here in the next few moments. It's the Lord's Supper. And what I would like for us to do as we receive the elements, and if your faith is in Christ, you are welcome to come and receive these elements during worship. What I'd like to ask you to do is to fight to embrace this truth for yourself completely, that you are really this forgiven. That through faith in Jesus Christ, by trusting in him in his work on the cross, we are forgiven of every single sin. And if you really see this grace for what it is, you will have a very hard time believing it. If it's easy for you to believe, you don't see it yet. It is hard to believe that God is this gracious and so, and that we are this forgiven. And so as I close here, um, what I'd like to do is I'd like to read a portion of Psalm 103. And I want to invite you into owning these few verses for yourself. And if you have to think about what you did today, that you are ashamed of, or think about what you've done in your past that you are running from or trying to bury in a closet. Do that. Recognize that what God says through David in this psalm is true about you if your faith is in Christ Jesus. You really are this forgiven. Here's the psalm. 103, starting with verse 8. The Lord, Yahweh, is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, 
So the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. There is no sin in your life right now or has ever been that is too great such that the grace of Christ cannot forgive it. Period. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this, the, the stuff we're talking about today is so easy for us to shrug our shoulders and roll over our backs and not allow for the reality to infiltrate our hearts the way it ought to. And what we need is your Holy Spirit's help. We need your spirit to come and to awaken our understanding of the profound grace that is found in Christ Jesus. There is literally nothing like it in the universe. Father, I pray that you would awaken in our souls, the depths of our souls, not only a, a, an intense understanding of how we have committed treason against a holy and wonderful God who deserves our affection and our love and our joy and gladness in him. But Father, the grace that was needed to shoot past your just indignation and absorb it on the cross, your steadfast love and faithfulness is as high as the heavens. Help us to understand how forgiven we are. That you can separate us from our sins, separate the iniquities we've committed from our hearts as far as the east is from the west, Father God. Help us feel that forgiven and recognize that that is who we are in Christ Jesus. We are forgiven sinners who have come to find the steadfast love and faithfulness, the grace and truth that is in Christ Jesus. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ alone. Amen.